Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? My name is Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? Lawrence O'Donnell is on the show today. Lawrence, uh, you may know him from his nightly show on MSNBC. You, yeah, he was, uh, he's, a, he's an author. He's here to talk about a book. He's a former Senate staffer. He was a writer for the West Wing. He was an actor and stuff like Big Love and Monk. And he's got a book out, Playing with Fire, the 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics. He's going to be here in a minute. I'm going to try to turn this ship around. There's got to be some good things. You know, I, I, I'm i trying to be optimistic about the future, trying to be practical. I, I swear to God, I, you know, my life, right now I'm trying to, to box stuff up. And uh, get stuff uh, together. And I'm throwing out a lot of stuff. And, and I really just don't give a fuck about it anymore. I never thought that day would come to where I just... All these tchotchkes and bullshit things that have just been hanging around. You know, get, Like I'm like a cat. I'm no different than a cat, really. With everything that's in my room. There's not, I don't have a lot of shit, but in the garage I have a lot of shit. But it's just what I'm comfortable with. Like if I remove large swaths of the shit in here... I'll be awkward and uncomfortable, and I I won't know where to to you know, I, I I wouldn't know where to sit. I wouldn't know where to 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 rest. I I'm just like I get comfortable with the shapes in my environment, and now I'm moving the shapes. I'm throwing stuff out. I'm moving the shapes. I'm emptying rooms. It's fucking, it's weird, but I do not give a fuck. And I think maybe that's a a sign of growth. Maybe it's just the fact that I'm I'm old er. And I don't uh, see any reason to carry this shit around anymore. Sometimes you just want a blank slate. You just want a, an like the, you want just a mattress on the floor. That moment where you get everything out, and it's just uh, you and that lamp and that mattress on the floor, and you're like, "Why didn't I do this from the very beginning?" Because you have a lifetime of garbage that you amass and collect, and for some reason you can't get rid of it. There's days where I'm just sort of like, "I, I want everything gone. I don't want to feed these fucking cats anymore. I don't want any of it." And then there's days where, you know, I read the news and I'm like, I don't know. I just talked to uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates in here and we were talking about a James Baldwin quote that he had, he had said gave him relief. And uh, I, I guess on some level it does, but James Baldwin, 
said, uh, you should be aware that failure is a distinct possibility. I don't know if we're going to turn a corner. We might not turn a corner. And then what does that look like? Do we just adapt? It's so, it's so like chest crushing. All of it. I don't know what to do some days other than think about leaving. But you know, there is, there's, there's the macro and then the, there's the micro. You know what I mean? Like there's still good moments, right? We've, we've got some good moments. Don't we have good moments, folks? A few good moments. All right. I don't know why I don't just tell you. I'm moving. I'm moving. I'm moving out of this crumbling, small, <laughs> adobe, <laughs> two-bedroom cabin I live in. I'm moving somewhere else. And I should be excited. I am excited. I got a different house. And it's very exciting, but I've been here a long time and I'm dug in here and I'm dug into this garage and I'm dug into everything that's, you know, in the garage and in my life and in my house, but I haven't done any work on the house really other than a driveway for years. It's falling down. Then the idea is sort of like, well, what do I do? I'm I'm still going to work here. I don't know what to do with the house just yet, but I am going to another house. And I don't know why I haven't been telling you about it. I just feel like, you know, there's so much else going on in the world. What do I got to share? Why should I share anything I'm excited about? I was looking for a long time, kind of half thinking about doing it. And then I just uh, found a place and I'm going to do it. And it's a big thing. I've only bought one house. This was the only house I bought. And I've worn it out. I've worn this house out. But uh, I can't really start recording at the other place for a while so i'm gonna be here in the garage for a while and i'll let you know what happens but that's why i'm going through all my stuff there's a lot of heartbreak and a lot of weirdness in this house there's a lot of ghosts there's a lot of bits and pieces from you know several different relationships there's bits and pieces of you know several different you know big ideas about how i should live and who i'm living with there's bits and pieces of my life going all the way back to you know college in this garage and it's like I I don't know what to take I don't know what to leave but I'm excited and maybe I don't feel like I deserve it or something maybe all this work I just got to the point where I'm like you know I'm not married I don't have children what what am I doing what am I waiting for isn't you know getting a new place one of the exciting things people do So I did that, and now I'm overwhelmed, anxious, terrified, and in chaos, but I'm excited, and it's a good thing, and I don't know. I I would have just stayed here like a cat, but then I started to think, like, do I want to die in this house? Is this where where I want that to happen? Am I just going to die along with this house? Am I just going to watch myself crumble as this place crumbles, as bolts fall out of window hinges? I just get used to it, and wait for the drop on the floor and then stick it back in when I close the window as roofs leak? Do I just start to watch myself hunch over, walk slower in this house? Nope. I'm fucking moving. It's a big deal. So there, it's out of the bag. I'm happy about it. I'm nervous about it. I'm overwhelmed, but I I feel like I worked hard and I'm going to go and live in a in a nicer house, okay? 
There, I said it. Why am I ashamed to say that? It's so stupid. Oh, yeah. I got this other thing I wanted to share with you. A nice story. I like this story. It's from an email. But I think uh, <laughs> it was touching. My eight-year-old is in tears over Buster's return. That's the subject line. How am I not going to pop that open? Hello, Mark. I wanted to let you know that my husband and I are longtime fans. We often listen in the car, and our eight-year-old son was with me last week when he discussed Buster running away. We have three rescue cats who are all brothers. They're about 18 months old. And when my son heard you say Buster was missing, he burst into tears and said we needed to find a way to help. I later found him in his room making missing Buster kitten signs. Mind you, we live in the suburbs of Chicago, and I told him this gesture was very kind, but I doubt Buster would make it this far from home. This morning, while listening to you on the way to school for him and work for me, we heard Buster was back and he cried tears of joy for you and asked that I pass along the message that he is so happy for you to have him back. (laughs) Oh, boy. I hope this message finds you well. And please never forget that you have fans big and small all over all my best. That's a that's a sweet one. Look, I, look I'm, I'm glad he's back, too. Seriously. So Lawrence O'Donnell, the Lawrence O'Donnell, um, intense guy. If you watch his show on MSNBC, means business. He's got his sights focused on some. Uh, he's, he's, he, he's going for it. He's gonna, he wants to take this fucker down. That's no doubt. But he's done a lot of other stuff. And he's lived an interesting life. And he grew up in Boston. And somehow he's he's managed to temper that a little bit, but he comes from Boston, so uh, so it's, yeah, I was excited to talk to him. So this is me talking to uh, Lawrence O'Donnell. New book is "Playing with Fire: The 1968 Election and the Transformation of American Politics." All right, okay, here we. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Go. You have a like a life out here too, right? Do you have yes. a house and a car? Yeah, I have a house and a car in Santa Monica. Yeah. You shoot the show in New York. Yes. All the time. Yes. It, isn't that getting tiring? Uh, I do it here. Like I'll, I'll. Oh, do you can it, do it here. I can do it here. Like I'll, I'll do it here. Uh, you know, if I'm here for a weekend, I'll sometimes yeah. do it here on monday do you consider this your home i do because i don't have another home i have hotel rooms and so it's my home so i you know i i'm i'm gonna try not to just uh engage you on political matters but uh but like i read some of the press for this and i looked through this book and and i just talked to uh ken burns oh yeah and lynn novick i watched all of the vietnam war documentary 
And this, uh, this, there's backstory in that that shows up here in your book because it's history. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I found comfort in that uh, it seemed like things were pretty bad then. Like I, I think you know, I know oh. things are bad now, but when I watched that because I was too young and too like uninterested or apathetic to really wrap my brain around it, but the country was about to come apart. Yes, and that's what this book is about, really. Yes, right. It's yes. about heading into that. Yes. So you you think it was worse then? Oh yes, in uh, <laughs> almost incalculably worse. And you remember it? I lived it. Because you're a little older than me. Yeah, I went, in college. To, I went to Vietnam funerals. Right. So you were in college in 70. Yeah. You started in yeah, 70? Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. I, would, I know I was there in 72 because that's when I got my draft noticed. You so, did? Oh, yeah. so you got one of the last ones. I got one, one of those ones, ones where it was just sort of like, go die. That's right. Yeah, you know, we don't even that's right. we don't even know what's going on there anymore. That's right. Go die. Yeah. You got one of those draft notices. got notice. one of those. So how did, what happened? So I got the draft notice, and I had to go to South Boston to the... Uh, Southie. So I had to go down there for my physical. Yeah. And so these guys there, you know, who were, like, dressed as women and trying to get out of it, you know, and, right. and, and pretending to be mentally ill and all this stuff. And and by this time, you know, they'd seen everything. And yeah. so you could not just walk in there in a dress and get out of the draft. Right. Like not anymore. Covered like, in peanut butter. Yeah, like that would, work, that would work in 67. Right. You know, it isn't going to work now, you know? And, <laughs> and so... <laughs> and so, um, you know, I, I go through this whole thing. Are you telling me you were dressed as a woman and no, you turned away? I and went, went in. I couldn't think of anything, so I went in dressed as me. Yeah. And and I passed the physical, and uh, and so then the process was you go home. Yeah. And you wait uh, two weeks approximately. Yeah. Then you're going to get a letter that says, you know, be at South Station Saturday morning at 5 a.m. for the bus to Fort Dix for oh basic my God, training. Just like that. Just like that. Right. So. <sighs> Uh, and I'm at home, and and you know, and I'm we're trying to figure out what to do and and how to deal with this. And uh, and the one thing I was sure of was I'm not going to go. That I'm not going to do. And really? so am I, I'm going to. You decided. Yeah, that. I'm, you had I, resolve I'm, around. Yeah, that. and it was I'm going to go. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to, you know, end up in federal court like Muhammad Ali, and go to prison. I'm glad and, you had a precedent for you. Yeah. This. <laughs> And uh, <laughs> Me and or, or am I going to go to Canada? Am I going to go to Sweden? But I'm not going to South Station yeah. in two weeks. Yeah. And, you know, my father was a lawyer by then. He, he was a cop and he, he went to law school. Nice. He was a lawyer by then. And, and he had represented uh, some of the very first uh, mafia people who'd ever gone to trial in America. In, in Boston. Uh, in Boston. The and Irish so, mob or the No, no, no. Italian the Italians. Oh, yeah? And so he... New people, like if you go, if you go to Danbury, <laughs> yeah, you will eat well, yeah, and because uh, you know Jerry and Julo will take care of you and all. You know. So it's like all this stuff was going Food's on. Food's an easy favor, and, and then bang, like ten days into this, Nixon ends the draft that day. Over, done. Oh, oh man, and you were just sweating. Yeah, you're going to have yeah. to go meet with some mobsters, right? And it, but there's all these people. You know who are alive today? Yeah, uh, those guys that I was over at the uh, induction center with in South Boston, all of them, yeah, lived, and they all, you know, none of them joined the army because they wouldn't have been there getting yeah. drafted if they wanted to join the army. Uh, many of them went on to have grandchildren who don't know, yeah, that what how lucky they are that that, that person lived, yeah, and and now they live, yeah. I you know? in, in after watching that Vietnam doc, knowing that at that point. That there was everyone, everyone knew that there was no point. 
Yes. And that people were still dying and still being drafted for it was a, a lost cause. Well, and and the the worst thing of it all is the people yeah. who knew there was no point included the presidents who did this. Yeah, all of them. I mean, LBJ from the knew. beginning. Yeah, the, like even Kennedy, they yeah. were like, uh, "It's a, not, yeah. it's not." A yeah, way. and and Nixon and Kissinger, they knew, you know, and uh, you know, and remember the crime Nixon commits. Yeah, is to continue the war the crime he commits is is to say for me to get elected there can't be any breakthrough for peace i won't win if lbj has a breakthrough for peace Theref- right therefore i want this war to extend. so he goes behind lbj's back yeah. right but yeah but when but to say i want the war to extend remember yeah. is to say i want thousands more american soldiers dead kids so that i can win the presidency yeah kids so okay so that in itself that level of of moral bankruptcy you think you think that so far transcends Trump's level of moral bank. Well, I think Trump has shown himself to be a person who would do exactly the same thing. Right. I mean, in the same, you give him that setting, and it could be worse. Sure. Right. Uh, it, it absolutely could be worse. And and so, in, but, but what we saw was what we now know is a president was elected in 1968 in the middle of a war, thanks to collusion with a foreign power. So that's the, how he was elected. The South Vietnamese, yeah, yeah, and the North. He communicated to both, but specifically, oh, really? the, the best the best line of communication was to the South. But this uh, woman, and LBJ didn't want to make it. He didn't want to make hay about it for the, the sake the, of the country, the good of the country. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. So wait, now your dad was a cop when yeah. you were a kid. He was a Boston cop, and uh, what, what years though? When did he? You know, in uh, after the war, so you know the late forties, early fifties, he was a Boston cop, and so I was when I was born in the early fifties, he was a Boston cop, and so no kidding, yeah, and, and he was what uh, part of Boston did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in Dorchester, which is Come like on, way really? above where my father grew up. My father grew up in Roxbury. Actually, my father West grew up- West Roxbury? No, no, no. That's that's like the Conan O'Brien neighborhood. That's like the classy. People went to college in West Roxbury. Oh, I didn't know if it was bad then, though. <laughs> no, no. So Roxbury, no, West Roxbury. Roxbury, but Roxbury is a whole other thing. And, and, and so he grew up very poor because, uh, uh, you know, his father uh, died uh, when he, my father was about 11 years old. And so- he and were his they bro- all, 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 were they first generation? Your grandparents? no, no, no. My no. my my grandfather, my father's father, came yeah. over here when he was a year old. So so yeah, oh, okay, okay. So, that's yeah. so he was born in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so my father had a really really uh, tough life, yeah. and um, and ended up luckily uh, becoming for him becoming yeah. a Boston cop because you know they never fired cops, so now you have a paycheck for the rest of your life, right? And uh, yeah. And and but he's a wise guy because you know he's that's what we are, and and that's so right. so he's the O'Donnells are or the Irish? Well, the Boston Irish, yeah, the Boston, the Boston Irish. Irish. There's just there's sure. you know it's it's a culture that's a clench fist. Yeah, I, you know? I I lived there for years I, and I was terrified. I don't have to convince you. I was, te- I was terrified. Right. I, right. I was paranoid. <laughs> and so and so um, so he's a wise guy and he's sitting there in the witness stand as a Boston police patrolman, right? And he's getting cross examined. For anything, for anything, right? And he's getting (laughs) cross-examined by these lawyers, and he's sitting there thinking, I could do that. 
Uh, I could do that. <laughs> that guy, I could do that. He's making more he's money. A, he's barely a high school graduate. Okay, yeah, he did. Father. Yeah, he did yeah. terrible in high school. Yeah, he's sitting there thinking he's smarter than every lawyer in the courtroom. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. And it turns out he is. <laughs> and so he, he's the first Boston cop ever who uh, goes to college and law school nights. And back then, he didn't even finish college. He, yeah. went, he went to an unaccredited college. Suffolk University. Uh-huh. He went for two years. That was enough for the unaccredited law school at yeah. Suffolk University to let him into the law school. So he then, you know, gets through law school and uh, and becomes a lawyer. So really, for you know my functional memory, you know, my old man was a lawyer, which was a a giant giant difference in my neighborhood where everybody else's father was a cop or but did he become or... like the, the the neighborhood lawyer no no he I became mean... a big time boston criminal lawyer like that like he's the guy you go to and like no the shit. guy yeah, he became the guy <laughs> it was fascinating you know because he when i was a kid yeah. you could never get the slightest hint that anyone he was representing might have done it like that's out of the question, you know, and um, and a disturbing number of them, you know, went to jail un- 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 unjustly, as far as I know. Oh, right, you right. Know, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so yes, and and there was a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of adventure and in the way he did it, you know, and and he uh, he went much more with gut than scholarship. I'm mean, just amazing things that he pulled off that i watched him pull off but that, that was the period where whitey bulger was running everything right no what, here's the, here here okay here's the illusion of whitey bulger okay but you grew up in dorchester yeah, right? yeah yeah whitey bulger was the next place over in south boston and, Southie, uh, right and you know my oldest brother's uh wi- wife once had a date with whitey bulger really yeah. how, how many they grew brothers? up in the same housing how many, project. Bro- how many i have three older brothers that's it? Yeah, and a younger sister. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, uh, so you did the Catholic thing. They did what they oh, had to do. Yeah, but my mother <laughs> underpopulated. Oh, she really? only had five kids. Each of her <laughs> sisters had nine. Okay. One of your cousins. My mother was lazy yeah. about this. What did you? you know? She had a job, probably. No, she, did, she didn't. Most of the time, she ended up uh, working in my father's office and, and bringing some sense to that. And, so, <laughs> and some much-needed calm, I might say. Was uh, he a chaos guy? He was... Uh, very chaotic, and yeah. he was uh, filled with all kinds of rage that would come out, you know, almost every other day. And I was about 12, I think, when I discovered the source of that, uh, which I wrote about in my first book, but he was 11 years old. Yeah. Uh, and his father was a boxer, and his father killed himself. And the kids, oh. his his twin brother and his older brother, saw this happen, and it was a... It was one of those things, you know, where they, they, his older brother, Patrick, tried to take the gun away from his father. Patrick was like 12. And they chased, you know, he chased the kids into the park and grabbed the gun away. And so they, they witnessed this, right? And I discover this when I'm 12 years old. And I go, oh, now I get it. Now I get why he's yelling about where are the gray socks, sure. you know, yeah. like, like, like because his behavior in many instances was just mysterious like what is that rage about because it isn't about the subject it well that's sort of be. like where like borderline personality disorder comes from like, yeah that sense of abandonment and that like just like how why wouldn't everybody kill themselves what, right and 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 the and and you know he he's he, he forever at the, after that point for me became in many ways whenever he entered the kind of 
you know, the difficult behavioral zones. Yeah. He was just this little boy. He was this, I was watching a lost little boy yeah. who was lost in the worst way and who was filled, by the way, with shame for life. Because, because he couldn't, he couldn't stop him. No, no, no. Because of the horror, the, there's that. But yeah. The, the bigger part of it was the cultural shame. Uh, of having a dad Well, well first of yeah. all, within within the religion, that sure. is a mortal sin. Right. His father could not be buried in the Catholic Church because he committed suicide. So this is this is a kind of cultural shame. It could right. never be admitted. And, you know, and, and when I realized that I was going to have to write about it and tell that story yeah. in my first book, my my brothers were very worried about this because it had never been discussed in in the family in right, any right, way. And, right. and let sweeping grandpa's lie i never been dealt with and <laughs> yeah, they yeah. said and they just kept you know my brother michael is saying the old man's gonna go crazy he's gonna go crazy he sees that in this book he's oh he was still around yeah, oh yeah and so and so uh, so you're all terrified of so, him well I wasn't because I I wasn't at that point. I certainly but, was right. when I was ten. You know, absolutely. <laughs> it was like you know, like he would come home and you would just have to wait. Oh yeah, is like, he on fire yeah. or no? Okay, good. All right, I right. Know that. Let's eat. I, I know <laughs> that. <laughs> so, but um, but my father was the first one to read that book. Yeah, and he read it in a night, and he kind of woke me up in the middle of the night and just <laughs> said he loved it. You know? oh. and he and he completely understood since he's a big character in the book why. You, that had to be explained to understand him because he always did. Did he know it? Was it something surprising for him that you put it yes, together? Yes, it was surprising to him that it was in there. But oh, that's I, great. But I think in the flow of the book, it probably wasn't surprising when that paragraph started coming up because I was explaining him and I was explaining motivations yeah. and I was explaining choices he made. Yeah. And I think, and he's such, he was such a smart, he was very, you know, he was essentially, you know, uh, unschooled, but he had a great head for writing and for literature and yeah. for and so i think he understood the flow of a story and i think he understood why this is happening on page 180 sure, of this book sure but did know? he did do you think you made psychological and emotional connections that he hadn't made so him reading your book was sort of a revelation I think it must have been that it must have been that because it's a it, tough it, line. What, to one, one thing you're discovering is, yeah. oh, this kid of mine who's now, I don't know, 30 <laughs> or something. Uh, these are his observations of me. Yeah. You know, and as I sit here, I have no idea if if, if my daughter at 30 were to write a book that included <laughs> me. Yeah. I don't have any idea what adjectives would be used. Yeah, right. Or, I mean, I know what facts could be told yeah. and, and what's, what scenes don't exist because I've never done that, you know, but sure. I don't. I but don't know. You have no. You don't know how. No matter how empathetic you are, you cannot know what her experience of you is. You don't know what they isolate. You yeah, don't know what right. the isolated yeah, camera is what, on. What's the repeated thing? Yeah, yeah. That one thing. And you and 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 look, I found out one fact about my father's history, and I used it to explain a lot, almost everything. Um, I don't know if if my daughter has a fact or a set of facts or something about me that she then uses to explain <laughs> like, stuff. I the don't big know. nightmare was she just she'll just disagree with you politically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, she, my father, the commie. No, nah, she's with me on that stuff. Oh, good, good, yeah, good. She's with me on that. You got her there. Yeah. You made sure she learned the right way. Right, but I am I am related to Trump voters. You know, you don't you can't come from Boston and not be. You know, you can't come no, from my I, part of and Boston. I, I, you know? And as me, like yeah, uh, coming from uh, narcissism, I, you know, I emotionally understand some of it. Mm -hmm. you, you know, like, and, and I think anybody who is has a big ego 
emotionally understands, you know, the relief of being a dick. Yes. It doesn't yes. last long. And most of us have shame about it. Right. But there is that moment where right. you're like, fuck you. Right. And you're like, he deserved it. Right. And then a year or so later, or a week later, a day later, you know, I'm saying, I was out of line. Yeah. You know, not, he, yeah. He's not never out of line, yeah. this guy. Yeah. The difference, by the way, culturally about that in Boston is that here are the things I'd never heard in my entire, I, I, I never heard any of these words till I got to college. Please, never heard that word. <laughs> never heard the word thank you, and I never heard the words I'm sorry, ever. We were just uncouth, but no one was confused. Like, the, no one was confused whether you were grateful for this thing if you didn't say thank you. Yeah. It, there was a basic kind of soul-level communication but where those words seemed unnecessary. How do you track that, though? Like, with the... Because, like, I'll tell you, I, I and I've talked about it a bit before. When I was going to college in... Boston, there was a period there where I was just a you know a sensitive Jewish kid in the middle of just just you know Irish townies everywhere. Yeah, and I got. Very, I'm so sorry. It's all right. <laughs> I grew to like them. Yeah. Like I go back now, and there's nothing more unique than you like the indigenous population of Boston. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you know, it's true. Uh, there, there's not nothing like it. And for a while, there was terrifying, and now I kind of romanticize it. But, I, you know, I go to Ireland, and I don't have any of I, – I feel so comfortable in Ireland. I'm a Jew, and, and I'm like, this is the greatest place. It's so green. These people are so humbled by history and, uh, and, and sort of sweet and uh, melancholy but not nasty. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you, uh, you, you know, explain the, 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 the gap? I have pondered it my whole life. Uh, and by the way, yeah. when I was a kid, the mayor of Dublin was a Jew. Oh, ben- yeah? Benjamin Briscoe. Yeah. It is inconceivable that in my lifetime there would be a mayor of Boston who was a Jew. Okay. <laughs> that was like that, unimaginable. I think it could happen now because Boston's changed dramatically and that's wonderful. But did you but, think, but it wasn't because, like, I didn't, here's the weird thing, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but someone asked me the other day, uh, I was on a podcast, someone asked me about the, you know, n- n- more so the New York guys the guys the the guys you associate with trump from new york these guys that are like hey what's up you know like the assholes like (laughs) like in in there there's the boston version but like i don't did you find do you think they're fundamentally anti-semitic or just what happened oh deeply but here's but here's what's so interesting (laughs) about it it was a purely theoretical thing because we had never met one we wouldn't know what direction to go to find one yeah and so i think i was about go to newton we didn't know where that was okay Okay? (laughs) there was no direct subway line but so 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 yes uh in my neighborhood jew was a verb Hmm. okay and and so the prejudice though I realized when I was in high school was completely theoretical. Yeah. And and I realized I, at the same time that Mo, the pharmacist on Adam Street, yeah. is Jewish. Right. No one knew that, you know, because he had some non-Jewish last name. Right. It never crossed anyone's mind. And so <laughs> Mally, the, and, and, he changed it. And Mo was beloved. Yeah. Mo, and, and he let people, you know, take the prescriptions without paying and catch yeah. up with them and all this. Mo was a phenomenally wonderful man. And, and so everybody loved him. And I know that if I could make an announcement, by the way, everybody, Mo is Jewish, they'd go, oh, and it would really... There'd be a pause because their anti-Semitism, which was universal as far as I could tell, was theoretical. It was right, but I find now that what we're finding is, and what I find that's scary about you, you know uh, what the, the remnants and the 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 never-ending sort of legacy of of any type of racism is that yeah, you could have done that. 
and they would have went, oh, but uh, he's a good he's one. He's the good one, yes. Yes, that's probably so, what they would have done. But And I was unique. I was so lucky about because my father did was a wise guy who decided I'm not going to be a cop, I'm going to be a lawyer. Because what that meant was at Suffolk Law School, he connected with a fellow student, Sam Cinnamon, who was Jewish. And I had this wonderful Jewish man in yeah. my home when I was a little boy, you know, just just kind of learning to speak English. And, 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 and also within my home, there was an absolute ban. It, and it never had to be said. Yeah. It was never said, but there was a ban on the racial slurs and all, lo- all that labeling. And I only realized there was a ban when I was in someone else's house and his father was a Boston cop and we we're sitting there in the kitchen and he's, and he's talking to, so the two parents are over there at the sink and they're talking and I hear him go, I hear him say this N word. Yeah. And I thought he had yeah. just said, fuck. I yeah. thought it was like, Oh, you can't say, I was like, I was stunned by it. Right. And, 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 and it was that moment when I realized, oh, my house is exceptional. Yeah, there's nothing worse than hearing that used casually. There, it's yeah. just to be in a moment with somebody who feels comfortable enough or just dug in or that it's just what they say. To hear that that word used casually or any sort of racist word, there's that moment where you're like, oh, what, do, what do I do now? Well, you're like, you know, well you're, you're not, now couple it with he's talking about someone he arrested. Okay. Yeah. So right away like that's that's where i first learned the disparate treatment that black people suffer at the hands of police but where does it turn for you like so your your old but your old man wasn't a drinker no my my father never had a drink in his life and did you ever find out why what I, was i've he? always suspected that his father was a probably right. a bad drunk is that know? what but what did you ever get an answer or, or get any closure or any explanation of where your grandfather was at when he did that and why no, he did it no my the only way my father would ever talk about his father was in the most heroic praise just what a heroic wonderful you know just just pure suspended praise suspended to before he picked up that gun that well, his i don't impression. believe it i don't believe it you know it's a, it's it's his rewriting of who his father who he wanted his father his father the boxer i'll never know the yeah, boxer his father the boxer i'll never know i'll never know really I'll, i don't think i'm ever going to have some view of his father because he w- my father was the access to that what about he, your uncles don't you have uncles or aunts they're, they're all gone and no one talked to them about it either my 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 father's sister is still with us but no one's ever talked to them about it it's just what the, what, you're the journalist I can't go to my father's sister and say, hey, let's talk about that day. You know, and oh, by the way, she was an infant, so she didn't, she didn't you know. know, she wasn't a witness. All right. You know? All right. So what drives you to uh, to get involved with politics? I mean, who were you, you know, where you started to realize, like, this is a thing that, that you could do? Uh, it was pure accident. I had no interest in it. I wasn't drawn to it in any way. Were you protesting in the 60s? Uh, yeah. I, in high school, I was going to the uh, anti-war demonstrations, you know, and in college, and I had this weird this weird freshman year in college where I was on the baseball team. At Harvard? I, yeah, because I was, I was okay at baseball, and, uh, and I'd be going down to practice, and it's like, I am missing the peace demonstration on the Boston Common today, what what am I doing? What yeah. kind of childish shit is this? Yeah, and and there was the, there's this wonderful Thoreau line where he, he, Henry David Thoreau says something about 
you know, when you become a man, you put away the things of a child. And I remember yeah. that line, put away the things of a child. Right. And I'm walking, you know, across. Like mitt, I got a baseball, baseball glove, glove in my hand <laughs> and I'm going, what yeah. am I doing? You know, yeah. it was. So and that's the way it was, you yeah. know. And uh, but were you awake and aware as a freshman? Totally. You were well, in high school. I was in see, high school. I was awake. See, that's it. everybody was. You couldn't be a sophomore in high school in America and not be worried about this because, in my case, my older brothers all had draft cards in their pocket. None you know, of them went. My oldest brother joined because uh, he was advised that if you get drafted, you have no control over it. If you join. In, and he was a college graduate by the time he joined. You might be able to get a soft assignment, which he did, and never left the United States. Okay. So those, you know, joining was part of the strategy of avoiding the war, like actually joining, <laughs> trying to get a cushy assignment in Germany or something. Is, you know, yeah, right. that was part of it. Isn't that interesting, though? That that what made everyone so aware, uh, 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 you know, aside from the media environment being much more intimate, you know, in, yeah. in terms of or much less expansive. Yeah. Uh, is that there was this real risk that you were going to get called up to go get killed or you, go fight. Either you were going to die, or your, your boyfriend was going to die, your cousin. You know, all my brothers are older than me, and I never heard a word when they were in college age and I was still in high school. I never heard one word about career planning or what are we going to do. Yeah. Or, and not a single word from anybody who was that age in my neighborhood. It was 100% about... How do I avoid Vietnam? And there were a tiny handful who just went. And they didn't want to, but they would join the Marines. You know, they just they just kind of obeyed the older rule. But but it, it seems to me that as the 60s went on and into, you know, the 70s, that, you know, even if some of them thought it was the right thing to do initially because they believed the government, that, that's, that what really defines the political culture that we're still living in is that that broke down. Because of Ellsberg, because of you know mm -hmm. information getting out, that the belief in the government doing the right thing did just uh, eroded. I think the the belief in the government doing the right thing was gone by 1968. By the end of 1968, oh really? Yeah, okay. by the end of 1968. And so anybody still, and in this book, he still pulls it. Yeah, up. anybody who enlists at that point is enlisting because they think they have no choice, or they're enlisting because they think it is the right thing to do even if this is a mess so okay so you you, you got your mitt in your hand you got your glove you can, <laughs> and you and you you activate so what do you study i end up through a process of elimination uh studying economics and i had a simple rule for myself which was i want to i want to take because you, you know when i opened the college course book there, yeah. were, there were thousands of courses there my first week freshman year and there were languages I did not know existed. I saw the word Urdu in this book you yeah. know, as a language for the very first time. It must have been wild. It's Harvard. Your dad must yeah. have been kind of blown away. Was that yeah. a, a normal thing? For no, that, that was a gigantic, uh, gigantic cultural achievement for us. In my neighborhood, Harvard was the punchline of a joke. A, right. a friend of mine would, would always say, and this was true, by yeah. the way, uh, my father works at Harvard Station. Yeah. <laughs> and he was the guy who was right. <laughs> making change yeah, for the yeah. tokens. And... Um, and so it was it was like it was uh, it was a really weird thing I have to say like when I got uh, the admission there and I got this form of early admission that they had for the local kids uh, basically local kids only and Boston kids only yeah. and the kids from the rich prep schools and they would tell you really early like around Thanksgiving you know you're in and so I actually applied to one college I never applied anywhere else just and, Harvard did you go yeah. to a prep school no oh. I don't know I, I, I had big 
problems in high school. I ended up going to three high schools, got kicked out of uh, one. What was the problem? Uh, discipline. It was uh, wise guys go to high school. You know, yeah. I mean, in our first high school that I went to, uh, all my brothers went to this uh, high school in, in West Roxbury, kind of uh, a higher class neighborhood, uh, a Catholic high school. And it was kind of new. It was re- and the new high school on the yeah. block. And they were competing with uh, Boston College High School, which was the prestigious Jesuit high school. And this was run by the Irish Christian Brothers. Yeah. And the way they competed with Boston College High School was to sit the parents down, because it's brand new. My brother yeah. Michael, I think, was in like their first class. <laughs> yeah. Sit the parents down and say, in effect, yeah. in polite, yeah. uh, you know, clerical language, we will beat the fucking shit out of your kid more than any other teacher anywhere. <laughs> it was like, we will beat them better. Where do I sign? You know, so so the cops and the firefighters and all, they're all signing. So we're all there. And these guys were famous for, yeah. like, their torture tools and, like, these these canes they would use to spank you. And no all kidding. This. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was... It was intense, and so, and they had literally an upstaircase and a downstaircase, and and so my brother and I were not particularly terrible. I mean, yeah. I mean, we didn't get in fights and stuff like some of the other guys. But at the end of uh, of like halfway through like sophomore year, yeah. they wrote a letter in the middle of the summer, like <laughs> August. Yeah, they just wrote a letter to about twenty five of us and said, you know what. Don't come back. Yeah. You know, we've thought about it. Yeah. We've had some time at the beach. Yeah. We can't stand the idea of yeah. you guys walking back in here. And so we, in the middle of the summer, had to scramble, you know, and find another high school. So you were smart ass, just disruptive or? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, just smart ass, actually. Just kind of, oh, I mean, like we would just skip school and go play pool. Sure. At the pool thing, yeah. You know, and. Uh, I remember one time. Uh, but were you were you getting shitty grades? No, I was doing pretty good. You know, yeah. I was doing I I was doing reasonably well. But here's the funny thing about that: uh, expectation yeah. and guidance. Right. Yeah. So I have. Well, by the time I'm a freshman in high school, yeah. I've got three older brothers who've gone through the same school in the same freshman year. <laughs> yeah. They say the following to me: Yeah, um, you won't understand the math. You won't understand the science. Uh, you won't understand the Latin. Uh, the English and the history, that's just reading. You'll understand that. I go, okay. So, I, and I'm telling you this is the... It's a big vote I, of confidence. No, but so that's my expectation. Yeah. So here's the strange thing. I'm in the second week of Latin class, and I still understand everything. Yeah. And I think, this can't last. Right. This, this has gonna to... fall out this at some has point. This can't yeah. happen, right? Yeah. And I'm in this third week of math class. I understand it all. Yeah. It's obviously not going to continue. Right. But I understand it. Yeah. So... It's like if I had just had one person somewhere in my life who said, you're going to do very well. You know, like, I wonder what would I have gotten even better grades? I don't know. You know? No one was giving you that. No, huh? Zero. The, zero. The man and wasn't that. No, he, he no, he was a terrible student. It, he just was hoping. I mean, yeah. he just was. Do like, what you can. He didn't know. He would have no idea how to help me with a math yeah, problem. Right. So it, it was just. And I and, you know, there's a cultural thing there, too, uh, which which was summarized for me flawlessly by carol o'connor on the murray griffin show <laughs> when i was about 13 right okay yeah all in the family's the biggest show in the world yeah. and carol o'connor has finished season one and he went off to the abbey theater in dublin yeah. for the hiatus right now he's back shooting season two he's the biggest tv star in the world he's sitting down with merv griffin who's also irish sure. these two irish right. guys okay merv says to carol o'connor 
Oh, when you went, because Carol O'Connor had trained at the Abbey Theater in Dublin. Oh, when you went back to the Abbey Theater, it must have been the return of the conquering hero. It must yeah. have been so wonderful. There's a little pause and a breath, and Carol O'Connor <laughs> says, Oh, Merv, you know, the Irish would always prefer you come home a failure. <laughs> And I went, oh, my God, it's my whole culture in a sentence. It's the whole thing right there. And so so what my brothers were telling me is don't feel bad when you flunk Latin and science. You're not going to understand chemistry. Well, no, what, no one ever has. Well, what do you make of that? What is that? What, 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 why the cultural impetus? Why is it that way? If, it, if, if it's a joke... And I know that they're hardened people and the Irish are, you know, they've had, they've taken their share of shots and that they're, they're like, uh, I, I just, but what is it about it culturally that that would be it? Is it a Catholic because, thing? Because success was a new experiment. This was new to them. I mean, just think about it in my own, my own family. I mean, my father's- So their father, comfort, it, it's, it's understandable. Yeah. Failure is understandable. Yeah, I mean, Success is like, what do we do with that? I am I am first generation college graduate in my family. My mother didn't go to college. Yeah. My father didn't graduate from college. I'm first generation. My my brother Michael, Kevin, the, the, Billy, they're, they're, they're the first ones. And in my neighborhood, by the time we were graduating from high school, approximately a maximum of half of the kids were headed to college and maybe half of them were going to finish. And so we didn't have two generations of experience with the full run of education. There was no physician in our family history. There was yeah. no lawyer. There was nobody who, right. who made a living in a necktie. Right. Yeah. And, and so it takes a while. You know, you, you, don't, you don't immediately adopt the values and the framework of the the academically successful world just because okay now you kids get to go to high school but you don't think that it came down through you know years of you know uh the the politics of of the british empire and then you know just this sort of idea that it's ingrained in the culture that life isn't fair yes oh yes that's for sure and that you know you just accept it yeah and you know if if you get lucky it's not going to last well and also the other thing that Carol O'Connor is saying there is they will know how to talk to me if I'm a failure. Yeah, that's they right. They won't know yeah, how right. to talk to me if I'm not. Right. They right. have every word to say to the failure. Yeah, they know they, how to, they'll, they'll, they'll like, tell them jokes. Have they'll, a drink. They'll, they'll, yeah, yeah. Everything. Yeah. They have everything. That's they, right. They have no vocabulary right. for success. It's comfortable. Because they have no experience right. with it. And the so-called successful person is suspect to them. How did that happen? Do you have that yeah. in you? Like do you no. like do you do you have an insecure like is there anything inside of you that you 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 are not comfortable with success? Oh no, not at all, um, not a bit. You can if you want. To, if anyone wants to give me any more, I w I will take whatever, whatever you can give me. I mean, are listen, you always like that? Yeah, because I because this is an evolution. You know, uh -huh. I I, don't, I have no idea what I would be. I really don't have the vaguest idea what I would be if my father had remained a boston cop i don't have any idea what i would have thought the horizon was i i don't know and uh oh, that's but but i've got a lot of um you know i got a lot of poison dna in me and stuff and a lot of a lot of stuff you know from my neighborhood that i use now as an excuse for the way i am you know i i, I kind of yeah, you got you got a lot of fuck you in you. Yeah, and and and, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and sometimes I, when I watch I'm watching Rachel that gets into you, I'm like, how fuck you is he going to be tonight? <laughs> well, I tr well, what you're watching is someone who's trying to suppress that 24 hours a day. I mean, so I mean, I 
you know, it literally in yeah. my neighborhood, if yeah. you stopped at a traffic light yeah. in in 1967, <laughs> and my people didn't know you, there yeah. was a very strong chance that there would be punching on your driver's window of your car, uh -huh. and they would punch their way through the window of your car, and uh. you'd be sitting there so shocked that it would take you a while to realize I should drive away because this is an <laughs> what's happening. Yeah, yeah, because there's this drunk. Irish 17-year-old <laughs> who's going bang, and he doesn't care that his hand is getting all ripped no. up, right? So I, I was watching that as a, as a little kid, and I, and I, I, didn't, I never liked it. I yeah. never liked it. And, and everybody in my neighborhood was ranked on how tough you are. And so literally, like, who's the toughest kid in the second grade? Yeah. Lawrence O'Donnell. Yeah. Who's the toughest kid in the third grade? Billy O'Donnell. Who's the, you know? Yeah. So, and my brother Michael was the toughest kid in his grade, so we kind of inherited those titles. By the time I'm in fourth grade, and Tom Broderick comes in as a transfer from South Boston, and he's bigger than me. Yeah. I'm thinking, fighting's overrated. Yeah. I, I shouldn't have to prove myself that way. Uh, yeah. Because <laughs> I immediately, I started to see... I could lose. That and as soon as I understood I could lose in fighting and I could lose teeth and stuff, yeah. I basically became a pacifist. So, like, in my neighborhood, nobody there, nobody in my neighborhood thinks of me as the slightest tough guy in the world because I didn't get in a single fight after, like, well, that fifth might, grade. That might know? have been the beginning of politics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like, how do, I, how do I win without yeah. getting hurt? How do I charm? How do I be a diplomat? How do I do this? No, I was really – I was trying – I was always trying to transcend the things in my culture that I did not like. Yeah. And I saw a lot of stuff in my culture that I didn't like. And I, and I knew I'm going to have to work at this. Um, for yourself personally. Yeah, for myself personally. I, philosophically and intellectually, it was really, really easy. I was in high school, and I read Dick Gregory's autobiography. Yeah. And Dick Gregory explains you know, why he's a pacifist. Bang, that day, I'm a pacifist forever, and now I know why. And Dick Gregory explains Gandhi to me on this page. I get it 100%. Dick Gregory explains a few pages down why he's a vegetarian. I walk in and I tell my mother I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. I become a vegetarian for the next 25 years. Really? So, 25 yeah, so, years? So intellectually adopting a, a new framework that was not available within my neighborhood was the easiest possible part of it. And a me. relief. Yes, and a relief. And I saw, oh, <laughs> yeah. that's the correct way to think. <laughs> yeah. And and I'm not even slightly tempted to throw a punch. Right. It's not, there's, I don't have any of that. I'm luckily, luckily that stuff got flushed out of me. All that stuff about, you know, throwing punches and, and, right. and all that stuff. And and a lot of it had to do with that I just never drank. I was ne I was literally never drunk yeah. ever, not once. Still? And, uh, yeah. And it was a, it was a miscalculation because what? it was, I wanted to like everybody yeah. else. Every kid my age was totally shit faced Friday and Saturday night when they were 10 years old, <laughs> 10 years old. If by 12, you were not getting shit faced on Friday and Saturday night, people were looking at you. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Wrong with so, that kid? so I tasted it and I hated it. Yeah. I drank the beer. It was the most foul thing I'd ever tasted. And I was a very hey. cold logician. I don't want something in my mouth that I don't like the taste of. I'm not having anymore. Yeah. And I didn't give a shit about peer press, you get, pressure. Sometimes you got to stick stuff. with it. Yeah, that's what I'm told. I didn't know that, but I didn't care because yeah. I wasn't going to stick with it. You know? Commitment. And, and then I made the mistaken calculation that, you know, this could work. This could really work with the girls because I'll be the one who's not puking. Yeah. Like that's yeah. going to, my stock's going to soar because I, I won't be puking. Yeah. You know, I'm the only one here. <laughs> Who's yeah. not leaning against <laughs> a lamppost puking? Like it, they, and did it? Did it work no, out? No, because it turns out they they, like, they had to be drunk too, and, and they I, like to I take, wasn't going to get them drunk. So and they like know. to take care of the pukers. Uh, they, yeah, they're very motherly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> so, so after college, did you you wrote for the Lampoon? Yeah, I was on the Lampoon. Uh, that was just um, a lucky, a really lucky thing for me. It was back in the day where merit was not what got you on. It was really, I mean, it was merit or good guy. I got on in the good guy category. Like people but, just wanted me hanging around. But you were a funny guy. I was a funny guy to sit around and talk right. and by the standards of the place. And possibly at least 50% of that was my accent. Oh, and, yeah. uh, and so- And how'd you get rid of that accent? I had to study and learn to speak American. And, and it was it was <laughs> the hardest thing in the comes world. It comes out sometimes. No, I, I like when it comes it's, out. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a show of intimacy. Uh-huh. The, more, the more intimate I get, the more it comes out. <laughs> Which is unfortunate because it's the ugliest sound. Oh, yes, it comes yeah. out. But, but no, I, I, I drove cross country between- high school and college that, yeah. that that summer and i get as as far as new jersey and i need gas yeah and i have to talk to a gas station attendant because new jersey you can't pump your own gas and all that stuff i don't understand a word he's saying he doesn't understand a <laughs> word on. i'm saying i'm like pointing it's like i'm in yugoslavia pointing to a gas tank and stuff, you know <laughs> i get back in the car and i go i gotta learn this and i so i turn on like CBS, speak american like cbs news radio and i just sit in the car driving as if i'm in the language lab listening to french or you know spanish yeah. tapes and i just listen and it and it's you know it's taken forever but it's right there and it cracks like it'll crack on my show too yeah. and like i feel it cracking and i try to swallow the word <laughs> on the show you know and then i feel like oh everybody sees this you know and then of course it flies by and no one quite catches what that was i turned into a cough or something so um, is it a shame thing are you ashamed no, of it are you no, ashamed of the anger and the... it's it's a weird thing i know how weird the sound is yeah. and and it's also it th- there's a the, the label of that sound is stupid. Uh-huh. Like, that is the label. Oh, of so it, that's right? it, yeah. And Southerners have this feeling, too. You know, I, I know Southerners who, they would, when they were kids, they would, if they were, you know, had the means, they would go to New York with their parents or something, and they would notice, you know, that the hotel treated their, yeah. their father differently because he had this accent. They treated him like he's dumb, yeah. you know? And, and the bad thing when I was in my 20s about the Boston accent is that people didn't know what it was. So they knew the Brooklyn accent because that had been in the movies. Yeah. The Boston accent had not. It's true, And so right? you just sounded stupid. No one knew where that was from. They yeah. didn't care. You yeah. just plain sounded stupid. And literally, though, to actually be understood, yeah, you actually have to learn these words <laughs> in other parts of the country, or how to or, say the words properly. Yeah, say- I mean, you know, like you can say, I can say to you know to my brothers, uh, say car, yeah, and they say car, yeah. and they think they've said exactly what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> it's like because yeah. we couldn't hear it. You know, Boston people couldn't hear the accent. We didn't know we had an accent. Uh, yeah, it's funny. So, uh, so what happens after Harvard? Did you graduate with the honors and shit? Not nothing special. I mean, everybody does. Like, oh, yeah. like two, you're at Harvard. Well, no, there's like at that time and still like two thirds of the class gets at least cum laude you know yeah, yeah. like if you don't have cum i had the that thing so you that's got the a, lowest one you got so. an undergraduate degree in economics yeah yeah and my my principle was i wanted to take courses where someone had to teach me so for example oh I, that you didn't because yeah, you didn't know I, anything. yeah you need a teacher for that right you can't just pick up economics books so i didn't take history courses because i thought i can just read the history myself i don't have to right. use my course time for that i didn't take literature courses because i thought i'll read all that when i finish college yeah. so i know no history and no literature i never did the homework i never read it well, you wrote a history book uh so these things happen <laughs> um but but <laughs> economics i thought i just I, I, it's just a way of understanding the world. And I thought it was the most interesting way to understand the world. 
And I never thought it had it would have anything to do with anything I would do occupationally in my life because I had absolutely no occupational ambition whatsoever, none. I had no plan, nothing. I was a I was a packing attendant in Boston when I was a college student. That's how I was making money. And when where I, uh, down in the combat zone, as they called it, what, you what, know, we're, we're parking for what uh, for the theater district. Yeah, theater district. Oh, the company had a bunch of lots, so there were lots down at the Boston Garden yeah. and in you know and. Um, all around town but and that, um, and that was a that was a on the level business and so <laughs> when i graduated i it was a cash business then yeah, mark yeah, a completely yeah, cash sure. business yeah, yeah, yeah. and so um, <laughs> and so when i when i graduated i was a parking attendant i went from graduation to the lot harvard you know, th the next night harvard I'm, educated yeah, parking I'm on, the, I'm on the parking lot and it was my father actually who said to me you know i've got this amazing case this new case you should write a book about it this was a very peculiar thing to say because there was no evidence that i wanted to write at all. Had you I, written? No, I, I would avoid college classes if they said you have to write a paper. I hated writing more than I could <laughs> I don't describe. Like writing. I hated yeah. it. Hated it. But he had this amazing case, this civil rights case of this guy who'd been killed by the Boston police and uh, and he took on the case for the widow and he had this amazing evidence that he had he had built. Yeah. And he he was he had he was convinced that he was proving the cover up and that they planted a gun and all this stuff and it's a really dramatic story and so yeah. I went into his office and I stared at it and I read the police reports in about three hours and I went oh my god there's a book here yeah and so that's the first book and and that's deadly why, force deadly force that's why he's so big in the book and it was the first book about uh, police killing black Americans and the the particular nature of the way that's done the way that's covered up and and everything we don't know about it everything we need to do, know about it and it came you know in the middle of the 1980s in a country that outside the black community didn't care about this at all it was impossible to get anyone's attention to it you wrote that what year it came out in 1984 really yeah and that was yeah. the first time you ever wrote yeah when did you graduate college 1976 okay so you were just really just hanging around? Yeah, I was a bum. No, there's, there's sections of my resume that look like prison time because it's just these big blanks. You know, it's like, what was he doing? He was on the sofa watching TV. What do you think he was doing? Thinking. You were know, thinking. <laughs> no, but the book took seven years to write. So, because I, for a couple of reasons, including I didn't know how to write. Yeah. And so, I mean, I literally wrote an entire version of it that the publisher rejected. Said, this is awful. Did you write it on a deal? Did you pitch it and yeah, get a deal? Yeah, I, I, miraculously... Uh, I got a nine thousand dollar advance uh, to write the book. It's uh, funny, like and that's in nineteen seventy seven, right? You're telling me it's like for a first book, the advance isn't much more than that now. It was the biggest. <laughs> I'd never, I didn't know there was money like that in the world, you know. Wow, and yeah. then you know, we sold it. The book came out. We sold it to Hollywood, and suddenly, in one day, in Century City, they hand me a check for a hundred thousand dollars. And like, oh, oh, because oh, you wrote I the like screenplay. This. No, that was just for the book rights. You know, just for the book rights, right? And no then, shit. you know, then there was the money for the script and all that stuff. Of that. I like and this. And that, that might not have gone anywhere. Book rights right. couldn't, you know, they, right. but that's a lot right. for book so rights. So I really liked this business a lot better real fast. And the book know? was a bestseller? No, it was it's so it was a bestseller in Boston only. It it was uh, it it did okay. It didn't make anything serious. And it, like I didn't read it, but so the 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 sort of story of your father is integrated throughout the story of this case. Yeah, because he's the lawyer. You're following him as the guy who takes on this case and proves for the first time. And this case goes to the United States Supreme Court and back. He went and, to the Supreme Court you're on on this case. Yeah, and and what was uh, the, what was the what was the what was it that yeah. the 
Supreme Court had decided. Well, there was there, there was all sorts of uh, evidentiary firsts in this case and procedural firsts uh-huh. that, that 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 judges just weren't accustomed to. You know that you're you're accusing the police department of covering this up, and so so what evidence is relevant to that was something they had to feel mm. their way through. You know, something had never been seen before, but had been happening for years. Yes, of course. Right. I mean, the the. This was the stuff that was being discussed around kitchen tables in in black communities and nowhere else in America. And and I wrote the first op-ed piece for the New York Times about this issue in uh, 1979, I think it was. 79. The New York Times had never covered this subject at that point. It didn't exist as a subject. There was no research on it. I had to do my that's, own social science on it. That's so not long ago. No, it's 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 crazy. It's it, 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 it was and, you know, and and, you know, the people, the other people who knew about it were cops. OK, that's who that's who knew sure. about it. Right. And so and, and here I'll tell you one story from that thing, which is an, an insight into the world is not as you know, it doesn't have the dimensions you think it does all the time. And there's something to be said for gut and experience. So jury selection on that case. Uh, I'm in the courtroom as like a, an assistant, you know, and, and my brother Michael is my father's co-counsel on, yeah. the, on the case by this time. Right. And there's a woman whose husband is a Revere police officer. Revere. Revere. Uh, next door to Boston. Yeah. And my father doesn't challenge her. Yeah. Let's her go. And we are sure he's going to use one of his challengers for the wife of a cop. You can't let the wife of a cop on this jury deciding whether these cops murdered a guy. You can't do that. And we think he's nuts. He's and, and and he lets it happen. Bang, she's on the jury, and then they break for a recess. I jump up out of my seat in the audience. My brother Michael goes right to him. Go, what what are you doing letting the wife of the cop, the wife of the revere cop in the jury? My old man, like totally one hundred percent confident as if this is absolute fact and yeah. it's not there's no guesswork involved, he says. Uh, nobody hates Boston cops like Revere cops. Nobody. <laughs> and nobody knows what cops are capable of better than their wives. Instantaneously, Michael and I both realize he's 100% right. He's a genius. Yeah, and this woman was with him 100% of the way as a juror. She uh-huh. never had one minute of being on the cop side of that case. You know? yeah. And there's, there's nobody at Harvard Law School who can teach you that. You know, there's no, you know. That's a good story. Is that in the movie? Uh, yeah, I think it's in the movie. It was, it was a CBS TV movie back in the day of Movie of the Week. Is that what it came? Yeah, That's it. Yeah. So you sold the book rights and then you got a script deal. Yeah. So it. then I'm in this business and then show business. And then in 1988, there is a writer's guild strike that lasts six months. And at that point, you just gotten in. I'd, I'd just been in. I'd yeah. just scrounging around, just getting a rewrite deal, yeah, you know, yeah. all this stuff, right? right? I got a Ray Stark rewrite deal. I'm going to get yeah. $15,000. This yeah. is so exciting. And so there's this strike that, that happens. Yeah. And uh, Senator Moynihan, uh, who I had ended up getting to know through his daughter, who was a friend of mine. Um, you dated his daughter? No, no. no. She, she knew friends of mine. She went to Harvard a few years after me. Yeah. And so she, she knew people in New York and we didn't know each other. And at some point we knew each other. Yeah. Okay. And then at some point she invited me to a thing, uh, this dinner thing that her, her father was doing. Went, yeah, sure. I'll go to that. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, Mrs. Moynihan's from Boston, from the Boston area. She still has a Boston accent. 
So we warm to each other right away. It comes back, right, when you talk to someone. Right, yeah. oh, all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I get it, and, and I'm never from there. Right. And yeah. so in 1988, um, exactly when the Writers Guild, 1987 is when the strike started, yeah. um, Senator Moynihan asked me to come into his reelection campaign after he realized that my union was on strike. And I think that was an act of charity. It was like... This kid needs a check or something, right? Because he's, you know, yeah, and, and I go, okay, yeah. you know, and 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 and, and he wouldn't be a scab. And I want no one in Hollywood to know this because you work so hard to get defined as a writer yeah. here, right? Yeah. It's so hard to do. And my agent now sees me as a writer. Yeah. I don't want my agent to know I'm doing this. They'll think I quit the business. Right? I, it's got to be a secret, right? And I keep it a secret as long as I can because I work for him in the 1988 campaign, which means I sit there and watch because I know nothing. I know absolutely nothing. And he wins with 68% of the vote. It didn't matter whether I was yeah, there. How long had he been there at that point? He, this was his third term he was yeah. running for. You know, he, he was Senator of New York. That yeah. was a Hillary Clinton seat. Right? Yeah, when he left, Hillary ran for his seat. Right, and uh, and he would spend you know three million to get reelected to that seat, uh, basically. And by, he was a good guy, solid yeah, guy, character. Guy. Yeah. And New Yorkers and, loved him. Yeah, and and a former Harvard professor. Mm. Uh, and so every day was like this private, you know, Harvard tutorial at the highest level. Uh, he's just an Our extraordinary politics. person. Just an extraordinary. Yeah. You know, you know how. You see somebody on stage, and then the backstage version isn't as big as the onstage version. Yeah. The backstage version of Pat Moynihan is way bigger than the onstage version because there's so much more that he knows and has to say. What was your job? I made up a title in the in the 88 campaign. I didn't have one for a yeah. long time. And I saw, I read an article about the Dukakis campaign, and I saw the title, Director of Communications, and I went, because Mrs. Moynihan's the campaign manager. I'm the other guy. That's yeah. the whole campaign. And I go, okay, I'm director of communications. Okay, there you go. So I didn't do anything. You I did, did nothing. You must have learned something, though. That that seems to be... I learned, I mostly, I learned about the state of New York, traveling upstate all over the place. But you didn't learn anything about politics? I, and I learned, I learned a certain amount about politics, but not, not very much, not then. But, but politics... What I didn't know was how much I knew about politics, because politics is, if you're going to get it generically, it is simply the anticipation of human beings. Okay, and so that includes understanding that revere cops hate Boston cops and their wives know how bad cops can be and all that stuff. So the anticipation of human beings is a generic skill, and I find that most people in politics don't have it. Uh, and it's the understanding for you know applied to a means to an end. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And 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 so so I I knew more in my gut than I realized, you know, and uh, and I was developing more, but I relied entirely on the Moynihan Senate staff in Washington and to tell me, you know, something would happen, and I'd go, "What does this mean? I don't know what this is." They're talking about this Social Security thing. What is that? And Dan Crane and these other people they'd working, for one, they'd just call me up. They say, "Here's what you need to know. This, this, this." Oh, that's this, what happened you know. to me with Brendan. Yeah, you know, when I went to Air America, I'm like, yeah. "I don't. What is? What's going on?" Right. And they right. will break it down for you. Right. And then you get it. Right. Because politics right. is different than government. You know, they're totally different things. Yeah. They have nothing. They they are unrelated skills. And yeah. what I've I've never I've, there are very few people who are good at the politics of campaigning and the politics of governing. That is the rarest possible combination. Obama might be the only one I've seen. That's who, good. Who combines them both? Yeah. You know, 
Bob Dole was great at the politics of governing. Uh-huh. We saw what he was at the politics of campaigning for president. Anyway, a little stiff. Right? Yeah. I mean, just to pick an example, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. um, there's a lot of them. Bill Bradley was great at the politics of governing, not so good at the politics of campaigning. So that's why he was never president. So so you get this little tutorial and you're, you're sort of, you know, in it. And then like, but that's really the beginning it kind of brings together your two worlds of writing and politics. But I never write a word for Pat Moynihan because no one does because he's a unique but writer. You're, but you're still learning. It's just like because yes. there's this weird yes. thing because well, now you are a I, respected uh, political pundit, and you know, and we'll get to the West Wing. But at that juncture, when you when you, after you, whatever you learned about the legal system and this stuff uh, investigatively about your father and Boston and everything else does not. It, it, that's part of the education of politics. Yeah. Yeah. So it all starts to add up. Yeah. Well, the the, the other thing though about uh, about the my entry into politics was I went in there as a writer. At that point I'm a writer and I'm saying to myself, yeah, I'll go on yeah. to I'll go on to a campaign cuz I want to see if I find something to write about. Mm. I have this very plimptonian inclination uh, which is to do things that I I'm invited to do that I do not know how to do. So I didn't ask to work in a political campaign. You know, Pat Moynihan and Liz Moynihan asked me to join their campaign. Oh, that's right. That's, so that's like Plimptonian that he used to like yeah. become a boxer, yeah. become a bullfighter. George Plimpton would yeah. train with the yeah. Detroit Lions <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah. that he could run one play in, in like yeah. an exhibition game. And he would write a beautiful book about that whole experience. There you go. Yeah. Paper Lion. And yeah. it was wonderful. And so my life is a set of chapters of Plimptonian exercises yeah. that I did not set out to do. I right. did not ask to do, except for... Uh, the writer part of my life, which at a certain point, I it was my father's idea, and then I did it, and, I, and then at that point, this is what I know how to do. So I'm I'm going forward as a writer, and so yes, I wanted to write for West Wing, and I wanted to write in show business, and I wanted to get script deals. That's all stuff that I wanted to do and put myself out for. And every other thing that I've done is an accident. It uh-huh. is just an accident. The working in the Senate. I ended up working in the Senate for Senator Morning for like seven, eight years, something like that. You did? Yeah. Yeah. I didn't. Uh, like the 88 campaign, when it was over, he said, what do you want? We're at lunch. He said, what do you want? And I thought, like, well, I'll have the omelet. And he meant, what job do you want? You know, and he, he couldn't make me a federal judge because I'm not a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so it's like, what job do you want? Yeah. And he said, well, come into the come into the Senate office and yeah. you can be, we'll call you my senior advisor. And, uh, wow. you know, this for the guy who needs no advice. Yeah. And and then that the Senate job got increasingly important because he moved into these chairmanships. And eventually became the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee. And so I had to run the staff of the Senate Finance Committee. We had to run that committee, which is taxation, international trade, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, health care, welfare. So we had to do a big tax bill for, for Clinton. We had to do NAFTA, had to pass through that committee. The World Trade Agreement had to pass through that committee. Hillary's health care bill tried to get made it through that committee, but did not make it through the Senate. Uh, welfare reform had to go through that committee. So it was real governance, and this was no longer Plimpton because I literally am. My hands are on the wheel. I am flying this plane. Yeah. I. I but the Plimpton I never uh, was always there. I was always observing it while doing it, but it was intensely real when I was running Senate committees. Yeah. That's the real thing, and you're in the Oval Office, and you are making the deal on exactly what this tax rate's going to be, and and that's the real thing. 
and that well, that is the nuts and bolts and like you described it with a certain excitement but that is exactly where the you know most americans eyes glaze over yes yes oh I, mine too I, if someone started talking like this to me before i worked in the senate i just would have get me uh, out of here i can't believe it by the time i'm two years into working in the senate i am sitting on the senate floor and i am hearing a speech about social security taxation and i'm on the verge of tears it's it's oh i can't it's, it's amazing so there's yeah. a weight to it there yeah. should be yeah you know when you're in that chamber yeah you should feel the the, yeah. the history of it yeah and i feel sorry for the people who are there now because you can't you can't feel it now it's it's become a it's an it's a nonsense place it's a yeah. house of nonsense so like my <laughs> like nonsense. my job doesn't exist the title exists yeah but the people who have the job that i had yeah. they haven't passed a single bill through their committee uh they have done nothing and and they don't do anything and they never will so how did west wing happen so when i uh when i left working in the senate uh basically kind of consolidated to la yeah. um and and was uh was actually writing a book then that i that i failed i was supposed to i was i got a deal to write my a version of my senate memoirs and I did such a bad job with it that the publisher canceled the book like a couple of years in and I was on the verge of bankruptcy and 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 it was horrible. Yeah. And MSNBC came along and said, "Hey, would you like to talk on TV about politics for money?" And I said, "How much?" And I said, "Yeah." And then I said, "Yes." Yeah. And and so I had that like, "Okay, that's yeah. that um, now I'm fending off bankruptcy." And then West Wing started up in uh basically in the year 1999. Um, Aaron uh, Aaron Sorkin got the pilot made, and then the network ordered episodes. And and but actually, you know, NBC rejected that pilot when it was first written. They got they got the pilot, they read it, they rejected it. Yeah, why? I, because there's no baby dying in the emergency room. No yeah. one pulls a gun. Oh, no one's facing the death penalty. It's just governing. There's no car chases. Yeah. It's guys in neckties marginally disagreeing uh -huh. uh and then in the end getting along uh -huh. and so it's like there's no show here right i understand completely yeah. why yeah. they rejected it um and so i was sent that pilot script as soon as aaron wrote it because my agent saw that and said wow if this thing goes to series if they make this thing they're going to need you, right this right? is your thing yeah and i didn't know aaron or anyone involved but that he knew they're going to need me and and so then a year later NBC makes the pilot because John Wells, who had who was running ER, used his muscle because he was also an executive producer on West Wing. He used his muscle to get NBC to make the pilot, which yeah. they did not want to do. And then the same thing happened with episodes, and 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 they got episodes ordered. So the the minute they order episodes, I get the call saying, you know, okay, Aaron would like to meet you because that's yeah. when they hire writers. So the fascinating thing for me was I had read the script a year before it was shot. They then send me a video cassette of the pilot that they've shot. And as far as I can tell, in a year to think about it, Aaron has not changed one word of <laughs> yeah. the West Wing pilot. <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at this thing and the script was great. And the thing I'm looking at is even greater because now there's Allison Janney and there's Martin Sheen yeah. and there's Richard Schiff and Brad Whitford and Tommy Schlamme has this camera flying through these corridors and bringing this thing to life in, in ways that my eye didn't see when I was reading the page. Yeah. And so I went in and met Aaron and I was, you know, I was the only member of the Writers Guild in L.A. who'd ever worked in Washington at the time, you know, and been in the Oval Office in an actual business meeting. And so... I was an easy hire. I was there. Well, what right was your impression of him immediately? Oh, I loved him. He he's he was great. And and in the first year, our offices were kind of like right beside each other. We, yeah. were, we were in this little bungalow where yeah. 
Aaron's there and I'm there. And uh, what was the lot? What lot were you on? Warner Brothers. Yeah. And and so I and I said at the time to a screenwriter friend of mine, I'm going to quit this MSNBC thing because I'm full time at the West Wing. I'm a writer at the West Wing. Full time. And this old screenwriter said to me, Oh no no, don't do that. If you quit the MSNBC thing, then you'll just be another schmuck writer. When you walk in the door now, they all think you know something that I don't know, yeah. you know, and you do. Yeah. You know, they're impressed with you, uh-huh. you know, being on MSNBC. So, you know, we'd be in the middle of a writer's meeting, three-hour writer's meeting or something at Warner Brothers. And I would get a, a call about, you know, can I do hardball at, you know, yeah. at four o'clock? And i go, yeah, okay. And so I would get up. And it would look like I'm going to the men's room. Yeah. And I'd come back. And, in, you know, Warner Brothers is here. NBC is next door. Right. You know, where Johnny Carson's studio used yeah, to be yeah. and Jay's studio. And right above that is where they shoot these MSNBC shots. <laughs> Easy. It's like four minutes away. Yeah. So I would disappear from the table for like 25 minutes, which is a long men's room thing, but it's not unheard sure. of. Okay. How many writers are in there? <laughs> there's like... another. There's like, you know, eight or nine writers in yeah. there. And I would come back a little orange yeah. you know with this yeah, make, makeup, on makeup thing you know and and resume where yeah. we were because it's easy for in a drama room it's easy to be stuck for 25 minutes yeah so you come back in they're right where they were when you left you know and so you go yeah, yeah, how yeah. about this yeah you know exactly. ah great idea just a you know? guy standing at a board <laughs> yes right <laughs> at the same place right, right. And a bunch of guys kind of sitting around like uh right well, but you you did both jobs for the, all those years. Yeah, but the MSNBC thing was nothing. It was literally like I had never never gave it a thought. West Wing was you know, TV writing was my job. That was my real life. That was a full time job. And, and you did it for like yeah. for years. Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I did the first two years of West Wing. Yeah, and then I left and created my own show for NBC, which didn't last long. I had the one I, with Josh Brolin. I had Josh Brolin playing a senator, yeah. an appointed senator. He's a good actor, that guy. Oh, he's so great. I love him so much. So good. Working with him was just a dream. And, and how many se- you did one we season? Did, we did. We got halfway through a season. And that that, that and was they, it. They pulled the plug? Yeah. They, they asked me to you know, come back. They could see my show was sinking, and they asked me to come back. If the, if that if your show gets canceled, would you please come back? You know. And, and oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, I will, because I will be desperate. I will come back right but, away. And all this time, you're still shooting the MSNBC show every day? No, little guest shots. And not every oh. day. It was whenever oh, I so said it wasn't yes. a regular show. Yeah, there's, day, there's days when I'd say no. Like, you were can, just on the payroll yeah, as a guy. Can, can you be a guest on Hardball today? Right. No, I can't. I get it. You know, my it. deal was I can always say no. I would go weeks at a time without being on at all. Right. Because my deal was I can say no every time you call me. And at some point you got married and had children during in this? Before, yeah, when I was working in the Senate, actually. My daughter was born uh, in the year before I left the Senate. Yeah. Oh, married an actress? Yes, Catherine Harold. Where did you uh, meet her? Uh, in New York, in the, yeah. in the world of New York. Yeah. She's funny. She's the greatest, yeah. She, uh, you guys get along? Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's good. She's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I loved her in, uh, what was that, Modern Romance? Was she in Modern Romance? Mary that- Harvard in Modern Romance. Yeah. And what I love about that name is that's Albert. Albert Brooks trying to come up with a wasp's name. You know, it's like, <laughs> Mary I, I'm, in my life, I yeah. have never met anyone named Harvard. Yeah. I think they like, they're, they went extinct, right. that tribe, you know, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. like Albert, oh, Mary Harvard. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Like, and was she, which, wasn't she in one of the Gary Shandling shows? Yeah, she played Gary's ex-wife in, I think it was season two. Right. I was at of the, Larry Sanders? Yeah, I was at Larry Sanders, yeah. which was the greatest, just the greatest thing to watch. And, you know, no one... No one wanted her to do it. I remember when they were asking her to do it, I was still in Washington. I remember coming out of the White House on a cell phone like the size of, you know, <laughs> yeah. a toaster. Yeah. And she's telling me, 
you know, I love the show because we'd seen season one. Yeah. thought it was the greatest thing ever. And and they're going, no, it's HBO. Because in, in those days, you know, she could get 22 episodes on yeah. NBC or CBS. In, and, and plus the second payment because they're going to rerun every yeah, yeah. You know, so the money was gigantically higher on the on cbs than it would have been on hbo so none of her representatives want her to do what we think is the best show on television yeah, when yeah. we're watching sure it. and so she you know she did it you know and you guys um, split up and like, yeah not i don't know i don't know mid 90s yeah somewhere i don't know somewhere but you're, like you're all right and you're yeah, co-parenting yeah, yeah the, the parenting thing um the parenting thing should mean that you are friends and partners for life it should mean that yeah and and if it doesn't you better figure out how to make it mean that i think that's true and sometimes it's a it's a rough maybe couple years transition yeah we didn't have a rough time well, that's we, good we never it really never had a rough time because okay, people i yeah. know like, we always yeah. understood what the, right what, what it was yeah it's all it's heartbreaking when yeah. shit gets bad yeah and yeah and i don't the, the I, i've never had that so that's i don't good. understand it so, all right, so you do all the West Wing, and then you get your own show on MSNBC, and that's your thing now. That's what you do. Uh, yeah, I guess it's my thing you, now. And you're it, there every night. No, I, I know, I know, you're right. <laughs> no, but see, this is, and this is the thing I've only yeah. realized recently, is that how I've never, because I didn't ask for it, I never asked for it. I never asked to be a pundit on MSNBC. I never asked for a show on MSNBC, never. And what happened is I would go in as a substitute, and the ratings would be very strong. Sometimes for the, like Ed or who like who uh, the biggest the, the reason they said we need you to do a show is that I went in for Keith Olbermann when, right, when Keith right, was Keith. the number one show. Right, and I held his rating. It was yeah. the same. Yeah. the rating was just the same. Yeah, you know, and I didn't know that they told me that. You yeah, know? and and so they shouldn't have told me that because I wouldn't have understood my negotiating right. position. You know, yeah, yeah, and so they just saw that and they went oh, you know, we really need you to do a show, which is exactly the way Rachel became a host. Rachel Maddow substituted for Keith. She did very well. She held the rating. They said, hey, let's put her on right after Keith. I was on Air America with her. They brought yeah. Air America. She got hired to be a newsreader. And then she did, it just became clear, like, she, like, the, do you ever watch her do her research? I mean, like. Yes. Yes. I mean, she, like, for, like, she would do this uh, two-hour show on uh, on radio, which, if you break it down, is not. Not incredibly long, but she would like ten hours yes. left, all night yes. with papers everywhere. Right. She still do that? Right. The yes. papers everywhere. So 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 <laughs> I finally like agree, like, okay, yeah. I'll I'll and I didn't want to do it because my daughter was still in high school yeah. and I didn't want to be in New York that much. And and you know, when you don't want to do something, it it means if they really want you to do it, then it just gets more and more advantageous the way the way Especially this, if you don't give a fuck. Yeah. And and so um so I finally, you know, agreed to it. And I, and I see the way Rachel does her, her work, right? <laughs> yeah. I look at that yeah. and I go, okay, so, so that's what it takes to be number one on, you've got to right. do a minimum of 12 hours of preparation for the <laughs> yeah. show. How many hours do you have to do to be number two? And it turns out <laughs> it's nowhere near what you have to do to be number one. There you go. You know, like nowhere yeah, close. I mean, a, and by the way, yeah. that's the Irish choice. Yeah, okay, the, the, I was just going to say, I was just going like, to say, there's the Irish. Right. Yeah. 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 Number two is it's perfectly fine. fine with me. It's fine with me. All right, man. Well, good job on the book. Good job on the show. You're doing a good I, thing. I don't know what I'm doing on the show. Well, you know what? It's and, and I I, I got to bring it up only because I saw it. 
I watched the uh, the video. Ah, yes. But but you know what? It's like it didn't surprise me, and you got off what, easy. What video are you talking? about? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I do. Because I'm a guy. I'm hot headed, and I've been in that seat before. And you have bad days, and, and you know sometimes there's a hammer. But yep. the truth of the matter is, is that it did, like it didn't surprise me, and it wasn't that bad. Okay, let me just say <laughs> I, I've not talked about it publicly. I don't know how, but let me just say this: that um, I hate what I saw on the video. I hate what it looks like because um, what it looks like to most people is different from what it was but i still hate it and i should know that things look different to people so well, what did it look like it looks like well people characterized it as look at him berating the employees no this is man overboard yeah <laughs> when when you're yelling man overboard on a boat you're not yelling at the crew right. you're going hey man this is a crisis yeah. right and i have no hiring the irish and man power. overboard is I, yeah i am no one's boss yeah. in yeah. that place they tell me there was way more yelling in the control room at each other. Yeah. Try that switch. Try that switch. You know, right. And they yelled down to other right. control rooms. And the other part of it is, and I and I'm, I hate trying to like be defensive and get myself out of the, the right. box I deserve here, but yeah. I'm in a glass enclosed soundproof sure. studio. I can see through the glass out there yeah. that there are some guys out there who are available to go try to find the guy who's hammering somewhere up here on top of my head. Yeah. So when I'm yelling to them, I'm yeah. trying to yell through soundproof sure. glass. Sure. They know me. I right. know them. They're not even looking in my direction. Yeah. Then they are. No one in the control room can talk to them because they don't have headsets on. Uh. They finally figure it out. So, so there was not – what it was was uh, this man overboard kind of – how do we fix this? A lot of things of going on at once. You got but, the problem in your ear. Right, right. And there's a moment on the tape there. And by the way, that eight minutes lasts, the, that covers the entire hour. Yeah. So there's a lot of quiet, calm stuff. In it's just but, like it's ongoing. There's a moment in the tape where this no, this person keeps talking in my ear. It's as if right now, if someone, if we started picking <laughs> up know, someone's phone call right know, now, yeah. you know, you'd go. So, so there's someone in my ear and I, and I say, oh, so now I know this can happen. Yeah. Like I've been doing this for six years, seven years. I didn't know that could happen. Like I now I know this can happen, and so I, you know, I mean, and it's it, live, right? You're and going it's live. all it's all live, and and I come <laughs> from the, the worst possible training for live because filmmaking. You know, I mean, yeah. a West Wing episode is a is a we shot it in thirty five millimeter film. We took six weeks to come up with a script. You take six weeks of production, yeah. and you know you've done a series, yeah. and you go into post-production, and yeah, you, and you can redo things yeah. even in post-production if you have to because what you're going for in any episode of television, no matter what it is, yeah. what you're going for is perfection. Now, someone might say, I didn't like that scene. You're talking about the writing. Okay, yeah, okay, right. that's our fault. But, yeah. but no one's saying, boy, the lighting was really dumb in that scene, yeah. or the what was the hammering? Right, like, right. like why when, yeah. when Mark was doing that scene, yeah. what was the hammering? Yeah. Right? Because we took that out, and we have complete control over that. So I came from a world where the thing that appears within the television screen has been worked to its perfection. Sure. Yeah. And now I'm, and, and I didn't realize that I'm in exactly the opposite arena. And this is how dumb I am. I didn't realize it until now. I didn't realize it until I saw that video and I yeah. went, and I went, well, okay, no one told you that that could happen, but you never fully embraced the work of this job to investigate everything that could happen so that you personally, when you go out there, know what this thing is that you're stepping into you right know? 
And and I I never really did. So now I know, like, if I go out there, there could be anything. <laughs> and my job is to deal with that. You know, like, I watch Anderson Cooper and those guys standing out in the rain, you yeah, know, yeah. In, live, and yeah. they're, they're fine. I could never do a second of standing in the hurricane, getting rain in my face, right. talking to... I couldn't do one second of yeah. I'm I'm not a real anchorman, but I still have an obligation to get my readiness up to the point where if suddenly there's a rainstorm in this protected studio, uh, I somehow well, keep going. Yeah, but it wasn't it wasn't one of because you can handle breaking news, you can handle changing the trajectory <laughs> yeah. of the yeah. story. Yeah. But like when you're there, like and I've been in those situations where whatever anyone thinks about the job, when you're on television or you know you have this downtime and shit isn't working out, it's just sort of like, can we just get this working? Because it's annoying, right. you know. Right. But, so, you know, when I'm yelling things like, you know, call Phil Griffin. It's, like, it's not I'm, at a person. No, just, no. And just, Phil Griffin doesn't think I'm yelling. No. And, and so, and in my neighborhood, by the way, if you were talking in any volume less than that, no one thought you were serious. Right. So, <laughs> I, so I imagine from talking to you that the thing that was the most horrifying was you saw your neighborhood come back. Exactly. <laughs> um, I spent my entire life yeah. trying to suppress the stuff yeah. that's in that video. And uh, listen, people who've known uh, me 20 years. Yeah. 20 years yeah. would say you know, male female no right. 20 years they would go so you have a temper i didn't, I didn't come on I, re- really oh my god you're gonna give yourself cancer the only people who've ever <laughs> yeah. seen are you a man of the faith only, the only people who've ever seen anything that's like that are my brothers and i will yell at them they will yell back right. at me i'll go are you crazy that would be stupid to right. get that mortgage yeah, yeah right and and i have to say that in order for him to think I'm serious. Like if I <laughs> don't have to talk in that if town. I don't yell at yeah. him about what a mistake that yeah. mortgage is, he won't think I really mean it. Well, you I know? think there's an opportunity here, Lawrence, to maybe do a whole show <laughs> in the tone of that oh. outtake tape. Oh. <laughs> but focus it. Oh. Don't focus it in the right place. Oh. <laughs> no, there's uh, there was uh, there's a West Wing writer who is now yeah. um, an Oscar winner, Josh Singer. Yeah. And he had this idea for a show. Um, when we, when he and I were writing at the West Wing, and it was to be, it was to be online because you couldn't do it anywhere else, and it was called "You Stupid Fuck," <laughs> and I would be the host of the show, and he would be the guest. He'd be the permanent guest, yeah. <laughs> and he would say something to me like, "So, why doesn't Obama try to get the Republicans to agree to the?" to go you know to the health care bill and and every answer i would and it's it's the guest questions the host and right. i'm sitting at the johnny carson desk like yeah, the host, yeah. and every one of my answers would, was to begin with you stupid fuck the reason <laughs> because because you know josh singer went to yale and yeah, harvard law yeah, school yeah. okay he was the only person at the Western, because he went to Yale and Harvard Law School, that when the door was closed and we were talking about a story, I could say to him anytime I wanted to, you stupid fuck. Because the one thing we were both sure of is he's not a stupid fuck. Right, right, right. But right. you could just like, yeah. you could use that as your opening reaction to his idea yeah, about yeah. why we sure, should not sure. do an episode. And everybody relates to that because right. that's why we have the president we have right, now. Right, yes. <laughs> yes. It's exactly that anger that you've been hiding. <laughs> It's driven this guy into office. No, I, I've, I've, I, it's, it's, it, you know what it is? It's this thing that anthropologists see. It's like a residual piece of DNA that's still left. Uh, it, uh-huh. It's been bred out though. It dies with me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's gone. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we'll gone. see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll talk to your daughter in 10 years. <laughs> no, it's got, I promise you it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I, I, I believe you. 
Thanks for talking, man. This is fun. See, I waited till the end, but I brought I brought up a little thing, and I think he handled it well. I think he handled it all right. Don't forget, if you haven't gotten a copy of Waiting for the Punch yet and you want one signed by me, you can get it at podswag.com slash punch. That's P-O-D-S-W-A-G dot com slash punch. Dig it. I want to thank all the people that came out to uh, third place books up there in Seattle uh, for the book signing. Brendan and I had a great time. It was great meeting everybody. That, that's a really amazing bookstore up there, that place. It was nice to be in such a, a well-stocked and uh, crowded independent bookstore. And uh, as always, again, great to see all the fans of the show. Great to meet everybody. Thank you for coming out. I wish I had more time to spend in Seattle, but I did not this time. I love it up there. Every time I'm up there, I just want to keep moving north. Keep going. Keep going. Onto the islands. Onto the islands. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. I will be on those islands. Maybe that's where I'll end up. I can only hope.